We all believe in a rapture. It's just the question is when. I mean, Jesus is going to return. No one denies that he will return and that it will be gathered to him, that it will be snatched to him. It just depends on where. You can just put it everywhere on that theological, uh, eschatological chart, wherever you want to put it. But we all believe it. The question is when. And I guess uh, that's what I said to my friend. And uh, I, th- I suppose it's important that, that we realize that when we talk about this, it does seem rather strange. Uh, it does seem strange. But, of course, resurrection from the dead seems strange. However you put it, wherever you put it, because that goes along with it. And the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, that's kind of hard to believe as well. And so, uh, now my friend has a very clear understanding of Israel and the church. And I said to him, you know, if you really, really get Israel and the church, the pre-trib rapture makes perfect sense. And that's what I would say to you as well. Uh, Whether it's weird, strange, or not, unexpected, if we understand what the Bible says about Israel and the church, we will understand, I think, evidence for a pre-trib rapture. So that's what I'm going to do. First, I'm going to talk about Israel, then I'm going to talk about the church, and then I'm going to talk about how we put those two things together. Okay? Well, let's see if this will work. It's off. Now it's on. There we go. Here's the first point I want to make, that Israel is central to the future tribulation. It is the people, when we think about the future tribulation period as described in the Bible, it is all about Israel. Uh, it just centers on Israel all the time. And I want to mention several ways, as I see from Scripture, that Israel is central to the future tribulation. First of all, Israel is central as the catalyst of the tribulation. You know, we take the idea of a seven-year tribulation from uh, Daniel 70 weeks in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And however you want to calculate the first 69 weeks, the 70th week, which is a seven-year period, is what we, where we understand the idea of a seven-year tribulation period. And when we look at that passage, we see something distinct. You see, the rapture is an any-moment event. This is something that was mentioned this morning by Dr. Heinsohn. Jesus said, be on the alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. It's a sudden, uh, any-moment event. But when we look at the tribulation, we can tell when it starts. It's not going to be an any-moment thing. We'll see when it starts. Uh, the, the tribulation has a precise starting point, and it's mentioned in Daniel 9.27. There's obviously a lot of interpretations of Daniel 9, but here's what this phrase, I think, means, where it says, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. The he that is being spoken of in the beginning of the 70th week is the future false messiah, also known as the beast, also known as the Antichrist. He is a future false messiah. He is a coming prince in this passage. He will come and make a firm covenant with many that could be either the leadership of Israel or perhaps Israel and her surrounding neighbors, but with many for one week, and then he will break that covenant. Basically, I think that this verse is saying is if you want to see the beginning of the tribulation, Israel must be involved in a future treaty, some sort of covenant with the future false Messiah. 
So in a sense, Israel starts the tribulation by making this treaty. So Israel is uh, central because it, it catalyzes. It, this nation will bring about the beginning of the tribulation. So the tribulation has a precise starting point, and Israel is part of that. Uh, Israel is not only the catalyst, but Israel is the focus of the tribulation. We know this verse. It's where we get one of the very famous uh, names for the tribulation period. Jeremiah 30, 30, verse 7 says, How awful that day will be. There will be none like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be delivered out of it. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is not the patriarch here, but the nation, the nation of Israel, uh, named for Jacob. Here, uh, the, the people of Israel are told that in the end of days, there will be a terrible time of, of suffering. It will be an awful day. It is a time of trouble, not for everyone, not for the church, but for Jacob. And so, uh, Israel is the focus of the tribulation. Uh, now, and by the way, if you look at Daniel 9.24, it does appear that the purposes for the tribulation which are laid out there are the 70 weeks are all about Israel, including the 70 weeks, but uh, we won't talk about that right now. Nevertheless, Israel is the focus of the tribulation. The whole tribulation is for Jacob. How so? How is Israel the focus of the tribulation? Well, first of all, the tribulation will be a time of persecution for Israel. That's what was mentioned this morning slightly, briefly by Dr. Heinsohn, but Revelation 12 speaks about uh, the woman. And I loved what Dr. Heinsohn said uh, when he said, uh, your mother is not your wife. The church is the bride of Christ. And yet this is the mother, uh, the, the, not, not, not uh, the Virgin Mary, but this is speaking about the nation of Israel. And the text is really clear when it talks about uh, this being Israel. It says in Revelation 12 that a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, she is obviously the contrast to the, uh, the prostitute, the whore of Babylon. And this is a symbolic picturing of Israel as a woman, not something so unusual in the book of Revelation. We know about Revelation 17 and 18 and, and Babylon. Uh, and she is... Uh, she has the sun and the moon. She's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars, obviously alluding to Genesis 37 in the dream that Joseph had, which represents the people of Israel, the, his 12 brothers. This is certainly not the church because the church did not give birth to the Messiah, but Messiah came out of Israel. Uh, seed of, of uh, the, uh, Israel according to the flesh, according to Romans 9. Uh, what Paul says. So Messiah comes from Israel. Now, so this woman is persecuted. Uh, it says in the middle of this passage, and it says that the dragon, verse 13, Revelation 12, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male. So what happens in the middle of the tribulation? He's cast down and he makes Israel, the, the dragon, Satan, the focus of his persecution. It will be a terrible time of persecution for the Jewish people. Uh, so bad that Israel will flee to the wilderness. And it says, From his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river after the woman to sweep her away in a torrent. There will be terrible persecution. And I have to say, I 
have experienced anti-Semitism in my lifetime. I have uh, known just through comments and things like that, but my parents experienced the worst imaginable anti-Semitism and persecution. Uh, I've lost, I lost my grandparents on both sides. One set at Auschwitz, another at Treblinka. Uh, all my, uh, my aunts and uncles perished in the Holocaust. Uh, I had four half-brothers and one sister, half-sister, that perished, that were my father's first family. Uh, I understand something of persecution, and yet it will not go away. And people you say, well, anti-Semitism is over. Anti-Semitism like that will never happen again because the world learned its lesson with the Nazis. Well, my friends, that is not the case. There is resurgent hatred of the Jewish people today. Uh, during the recent war, there were protests not just on the streets and attacks on Jewish people in Paris and in London, but also in Germany. In Germany, Jews were told, don't wear any outward accoutrements that might identify you as a Jew because the government can't protect you. That's what they were, they were told. Uh, it happened in Toronto. It happened in New York. There were, there were attacks on Jewish people in Chicago. Uh, this is not something of the past, and the scriptures foretell that in the tribulation period it will be resurgent. And of course, the Lord will protect Israel, not allow her to be destroyed, and so it says the dragon will become furious when he's not able to destroy the woman, so he's left to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony about Jesus. There will be Jewish people in the tribulation who believe, and when... Uh, uh, Satan can't destroy the Jewish people as a whole who flee. He will then turn his attention on Jewish people who believe in Jesus, who are those proclaiming the gospel in the tribulation period. So, but it's still Israel. So the tribulation will be a time of persecution for Israel. Also, the tribulation will be a time of... Uh, well, I, I think I may have skipped one. I'm going to go back here. Uh, tribulation will be a time of cleansing for Israel. Just a really quick verse in uh, Ezekiel 20, verses 37 through 28. It says, 37 and 38, it says, I will make you pass under the rod and bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge you of those who rebel and transgress against me. What this is saying is that Israel will be purged. Israel will be disciplined. That's what the rod there represents. Israel will experience discipline. It's the focus of the tribulation to try and bring Israel to a point of recognizing, because of that persecution, that Jesus is the Messiah and will then put her trust in the Messiah, ultimately at the culmination of the tribulation period. It is a time of cleansing, discipline, purging, and ultimate uh, faith in Jesus. I think that's so crucial because uh, many of us know this. What is it that brings people to believe in Jesus in our lives today? I always say there's two things, tra transitions and trouble. Best time to talk to someone uh, about faith in Jesus and help them to come to believe is when they're going through transitions, moving, uh, change, uh, changing their life, you know, empty nesters, whatever. But transitions, but also trouble. Those are the times. And what will God use to bring Israel as a nation ultimately to faith in Jesus? Trouble. 
the time of Jacob's trouble when she is put under the rod. Uh, the tribulation will also be a time of service for Israel. Israel will be the chief servant of the Lord in the tribulation. Uh, in Revelation chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, it says, Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the slaves of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So in the tribulation period, when the gospel has to go forth or whatever service has to be done for God, who does God set apart, seal, identify? There are 144,000 of the sons of Israel. Now, some people say, well, this could be the church. I find it unlikely. I can't find any usage of the, the term Israel to refer to the church in the whole New Testament. And that would be very unusual. And also to specify the tribes of Israel. People, one of the main questions I get, how do we know what tribes people are from? I get a lot of people calling in the radio and asking that question. And I always say, I don't know. But you know who knows? God knows. God knows what tribes people are from. Uh, so it's 144,000 for Israel. The purpose in this text is to serve God in a godless time on earth. That's what the purpose of the 144,000. We really don't know what, what they will do. It doesn't say. But when we look at their work in Revelation 7, it appears after they are sealed, then it describes the multitudes from the great tribulation who will come to know the Lord. That there will be multitudes of people from every tribe and tongue and nation who will come to know the Lord. Uh, a vast multitude. Well, Based on that, some have concluded that the role of the, the sealed 144,000 servants of Israel from Israel will be to be evangelists, and that's why they will be so effective in winning people. They were the ones that God will use to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So it'll be like 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams proclaiming the good news in the tribulation. We always often think of the tribulation as being just a time when terrible judgment happens, which it is, but it will be a time of revival. There will be people who will come to the Lord in great numbers because of the 144,000's ministry, most likely. Uh, now, the tribulation will also be a time of war for Israel. Revelation 16 speaks of the gathering of that war. It says in Revelation 16... Uh, verse 13 th uh, through verse uh, 16, it says, I saw three unclean spirits like flogs, frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs. Now listen to what they do. They travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God, the Almighty, that's the final campaign, the campaign of Armageddon, they assemble them at the place called in Hebrew, Hebrew Armageddon. Now, has anybody been to Israel? How many of you have not been to Israel? Okay. Well, you need to go. <laughs> and you don't need to be afraid to go. You'll feel safer in Israel than you will if you come to Chicago. I promise you. <laughs> or Raleigh, for that matter. But anyway, uh, the... When you go to Israel, you go to the place that's by Mount Megiddo. And it's an archaeological dig right now. It's all dug up. 
but you stand there and you look over the Jezreel Valley and you can see and you can look at history, all sorts of armies have gathered there in the past for war. All sorts of battles have taken place. And that is where the armies of the world, according to this, will gather. Now, I don't think that's where the battle necessarily takes place, but that's where they assemble, where they muster for battle. Because it says in Zechariah 12 that I will make Jerusalem a cup that causes staggering for the peoples who surround the city. The siege against Jerusalem will also involve Judah. And it says at the end of Zechariah 12.3, I will gather all the nations of the earth against her. So the nations of the world, just like Revelation 16 says, will gather there and then come against Jerusalem. Also, uh, Zechariah 14, verses 2 and 3 says, uh, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem for battle. Of course, it says the Lord will go out and fight against those nations that he fights on the day of battle, but he will gather all nations. Now, I mentioned my friend before. I asked him if this seems credible to him that there might be an international army gathered to attack Israel. Can you see that? And he says, yeah, that seems pretty plausible. That seems something like something that really could happen. Well, Israel is also central in the tribulation because it is the nation that brings an end to the tribulation. It is the nation that brings an end to the tribulation. Well, how so? Not because of anything they do so remarkably, but in one way. It is because Jesus said he will not return until Israel welcomes him. In Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Now your house is being left to you desolate. Right? The destruction of Jerusalem. And then he says, and henceforth you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Hebrew, the term of welcome, of greeting, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai. That's what Jesus said. Until you, Israel, Jerusalem, your leadership, until you welcome me back, I will not return. And so Jesus made that prediction. He said, that is the key. And you know what will happen because of the trouble and the persecution, the tribulation, I believe, that is when Israel will finally, her leadership will finally say, why is this happening? To whom can we turn for help? And that's when they will turn to the Lord Jesus. Israel will call for Messiah's return. In Zechariah 12.10 it says, I will pour out a spirit of, of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they have pierced. Jesus will return when they look in faith and call for the Messiah Jesus to return. And not only will Israel call for the Messiah's return, when they turn in faith to him, Israel will experience Messiah's spiritual cleansing. Zechariah 13.1 is very plain. It says on that day, a fountain will be opened to wash away sin and impurity. And this is what Paul is talking about. Romans 11, uh, 26 and 27 is in this way, he says, all Israel will be saved because the liberator will come from Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Israel will experience a spiritual cleansing when they turn to the Messiah. And then what will happen? 
then Israel will experience deliverance. They will be delivered by the Messiah Jesus. Zechariah is very plain. It says that when Messiah comes, he will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It says, On that day I will destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. It says in Zechariah 14, On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and he will then defend Israel. He'll, dev- he'll provide a way of escape for the nation that is besieged and defend his people. That is what ends the tribulation. By the way, I was uh, debating a fairly well-known evangelical uh, anti-Israel activist. There was a debate scheduled in Chicago with the, the... It was this fellow and me, and it was before only about 40 people the largest churches in Chicago gather, the pastors gather, and so it was the largest, uh, about the 15 largest churches and some staff members from each. And we had this forum. It was a debate. And the forum was first I gave a presentation, then the other fellow gave a presentation, then we kind of debated with each other, and then we took questions. And uh, my pastor was there. Uh, should I mention his name? Yeah, Erwin Lutzer. I'll give you his initials. His initials are Erwin Lutzer. Uh, <laughs> You may have heard of him. And Dr. Lutzer asked the question of this fellow. He said, you say that there's no need for Jesus to return to Israel, that there's no need for the Jewish people to be back in the land. There's no purpose or point to it. And it's not a fulfillment of Bible prophecy or or any setup for Bible prophecy. And he said, well, how would you you explain Zechariah 14, verses 3 and 4? I thought that was a pretty good question because if Jesus returns, where does he return? His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and deliver Jerusalem. This guy. Well, uh, this fellow who teaches at a very exceptionally good university uh, said, well, you know, that's apocalyptic literature and we just can't understand what it's talking about. So most likely that was fulfilled when the Jewish people returned from Babylon? And that was his answer. Look, I was not, now my turn to answer. I said, well, I've been to Jerusalem many times. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times. I have stood on the Mount of Olives countless times. There is, it has not been split from north to south. It never happened yet. And I guarantee you, it will happen in the future. That is a promise that we can take literally that Jesus will return and deliver his people, Israel, when they are facing this terrible persecution and war in the tribulation. But the point that I'm trying to make is what sets this end of the tribulation? What brings Jesus back at the end? It's when Israel turns to him in faith. Well, I'm not supposed to mention who it is, but my beloved, and guess who that is? who I've shared a home with for 38 years. Okay. She, when we were in seminary, all of a sudden started kind of feeling jittery all the time. And one day she leaned over and she felt a lump on her neck. And we went to the doctor and, of course, she had a goiter. She had an overactive thyroid. A thyroid that was going crazy and uh, we said is this bad he said well yeah you could die from it and so what we have to do is control 
the thyroid, and ultimately it was just she had to drink this stuff and have it destroyed. I thought thyroid, it's about this big, and yet this one little thing in your body controls whether you're hot or cold, whether you gain weight or lose weight, whether you go into storm or become lethargic. It is just this little bitty thing, but it's like your regulator for your entire body. And I thought, Israel is God's regulator for the world. It's God's thyroid for the world. The Jewish people in the tribulation period will regulate everything in terms of what the focus is, where the war will take place, who will be persecuted, and who will call for the Messiah to return. Here's what I'm trying to say is, the tribulation period is all about Israel. All about Israel. Now, what about the church? The church seems to be absent from the future tribulation. And I think I can make this case. Now, this is a not a good case to make, I'll tell you that. Because uh, absence... Uh, of evidence, is that how's that saying go? Uh, the, the just the, the, the yeah, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. That's it. Uh, it's an argument from silence. But I think the silence speaks loudly here, and I'll, I'll try and show you from the Book of Revelation what I mean. The church seems to be present in the first three chapters of Revelation. There's the message to the seven churches. In fact, the word church is used. Uh, some 19 times in chapters 1 through 3. Uh, this is a message from the Lord Jesus to the seven churches. And it's very clear there's a church present. And the, the church universal. But the church is not mentioned again, specifically by the name church, until chapter 21. I find that very interesting. But the church is indeed present in chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation. 19 times in chapters 1 through 3, not mentioned again until chapter 21. The church is promised deliverance, I believe, in chapter 3 from the tribulation. Promised deliverance from the tribulation. If you look at Revelation 3.10, it says, Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Well, so much of this has to do with your presuppositions about what you think about the book of Revelation. But it appears that you could think of this is going to be persecution now at the end of the first century of uh, the Roman Catholic, uh, the Roman Church, I'm sorry, the churches in Rome and around the world being persecuted by the Roman government. Uh, that's what some people think that this is talking about. But you know what I've discovered uh, is that, the, that though some people take that view uh, what happened to the church during the Roman persecution? Were they kept from the hour of testing? No, they went right through it. Uh, it appears, when you look at Revelation 3.10, that this is a promise made just to one church, it is said. It's just made to one local congregation, not to the church universal. It's to the, the church at Smyrna. Uh, I'm sorry, not Smyrna, Philadelphia, isn't it? Yes, Philadelphia. Uh, the church of Philadelphia is the one that uh, that is said, I will keep you from the hour of testing. Frankly, 
That's true, but then it says in verse 13, it says anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, what is true for the church of Philadelphia seems to be true for all the churches. And what this is saying about the church at Philadelphia is one day it will be kept from the hour of testing. If you keep reading the book of Revelation, it appears that there's going to be a time of terrible testing on the earth, which we would call the tribulation. And so this is saying that the church is promised deliverance. Now, it seems to me that if we're going to say that, well, the church is going to be strengthened and encouraged during a time of tribulation, it would have been, I will keep you not from the hour of testing, but a different Greek word, dia, through the hour of testing. But it says ek, out of. So the church is promised deliverance from the tribulation. Now, the church appears to be, during the tribulation period, it is mentioned in the sense that it is in heaven. It is in heaven during the tribulation period. Here's a number of reasons why I think that. It says in Revelation 4.4, around that throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. Some people think the 24 elders are angelic beings. But it seems to me that when you see them dressed in white clothes, that they are, uh, they are, 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 they are redeemed people. That's the picture of a redeemed person, is someone dressed in white clothes. And so this, this is in heaven, right? At the outset, when the tribulation is about to begin on earth, where are the, the leaders of the church? They are in heaven. And what do they say in Revelation 5? That 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And it goes on to say what they said in verses 9 and 10. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeem people for God by your, by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. So here is the promise. Now what's interesting is in some texts, I don't know if it's the best, but some texts actually say that you redeemed us specifically. Now even whether or not it says you are redeemed from every tribe and tongue and people, or if it says you redeemed us, it doesn't matter to me. They are singing a song of redemption and likely about their own redemption, just as Moses sang a song of redemption and didn't use the word us. They're singing and celebrating their redemption. And then Jesus opens the seals. And what happens? The judgments of the tribulation begin on the earth. So what I'm trying to say is it appears that the church is present in heaven when the tribulation begins on earth. What do I also know about this? Is that the church has experienced the Bema seat. The Bema seat. Why do I say that? Uh, let me just go through this. Uh, the church has already experienced the Bema seat in the sense that's the, the judgment seat of Christ. Why do I say that? They already have crowns. They are, uh, in Revelation chapter 19, they are described as wearing fine linen, bright and pure. So this indicates a church that the 24 elders represents that has already been uh, rewarded with crowns and also they have this fine linen, the white clothes that, that are on. And, uh, and so it seems to me that you have this unbelievable picture uh, of the church not mentioned before and after, uh, it's mentioned before and after the tribulation period, but not during. Now, the church is not mentioned at all in Revelation 6 through 18, 
I do want to mention a couple of things. Some people say that the 144,000 are the church. But as I said before, there are 144,000 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, that seems unlikely. Some argue uh, that there are believers and martyrs in the tribulation. There's a whole bunch of verses about people who are believers. But no one denies that there will be believers in the tribulation. These are tribulation saints, people that become believers during the tribulation because of the great testimony of the 144,000, most likely. So there's no mention, though, of the church on earth. When do we see the church next? In Revelation 19, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which takes place where? In Revelation 19, where does it take place? In heaven. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I think is amazing, led by the 24 elders in Revelation 19.4. Uh, it says that they are there and they worship uh, God and, and uh, the one who's seated on the throne. So you have the... the the 24 elders there in heaven. And the church has already experienced the Bema seat. They, they're dressed in white, as, we, as I said before. And then, here's the most interesting thing. When you look at Revelation 19, verse 4 has the 24 elders present. They're singing worship songs. Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has prepared herself. She is permitted to wear fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. She has already been rewarded at the Bema seat. And then, what will happen? Afterwards, after this celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, it says, I saw heaven opened, verse 11, and there was a white horse. Its rider was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knows except himself, he wore a robe stained with blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. So here is the descent of the Lord Jesus. We know to do what? To save Israel. And who goes with him? The church. The church accompanies the Messiah at his return. They are not on the earth waiting his return. They are in heaven with him to accompany him, accompany him on his return to deliver Israel. I think this is outstanding. Let me tell you why this is so amazing. It's not only just, a, I think, a great argument for a pre-trib rapture. The church's history is brutal towards the Jewish people. When we look at what the church has done in the name of Jesus, and I don't necessarily mean all true believers, but there were true believers. If we see what Martin Luther said, what John Chrysostom said, it is unbelievable. You know, Chrysostom said, God always hated the Jews. It's incumbent upon all Christians to hate the Jews. Luther laid out a plan which basically would have created concentration camps for Jewish people. The church historically has been brutal. I believe God's desire always was for the church to love and support and protect the Jewish people. And you know when the church will finally and fully experience that destiny? When she returns with the Lord Jesus, dressed in white, to deliver the Jewish people from the terrible persecution and war of the tribulation period. But that happens at the end of the tribulation and the church descends from where? Not from the earth, goes back, but from heaven, right with him. Which, by the way, is also mentioned in Zechariah 14. Now, that said, with 
just uh, one last point to make. Israel is the focus of the tribulation. The church seems to be absent from the tribulation on earth. Thirdly, Israel and the church are distinct entities. They're not the same. Uh, here's a couple of reasons why I would say the church and Israel are not the same. There's probably a lot more. I could write a book, but I, I won't. But here is, there is a great book called, uh, I think by a graduate of Southeastern, uh, Michael Vlock, uh, has the church replaced Israel. Israel and the church are different because they have different beginnings. Israel begins with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel begins way in the Old Testament with the descendants of the promise made to Abraham. Then that promise is not given to Ishmael. It's made to Isaac. It's then not given to Esau. It's made to Jacob. And then the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the people of Israel. That's the beginning of Israel. Uh, on the other hand, the church begins at Pentecost. The church begins at Pentecost. Now, we can, you know, say, oh, maybe it was the church was just being added to Israel here. Here's what I think. It's really clear in Acts that Peter saw the beginning of the church at Pentecost and not with Abraham. Why do I say this? Peter's the first to go preach to a Gentile. He convinces Cornelius with his preaching. Cornelius believes the Holy Spirit falls on him. He doesn't say, well, I'm really glad that you've become a Christian uh, or a follower of Jesus let me uh, arrange for your circumcision. doesn't do that. What's he do? He baptizes him. And then he has to go and give an account. Why did you baptize this guy without having him circumcised first? And Peter says, well, well, we saw the Holy Spirit fall on him as he did upon us at the beginning. Acts 11:15. Well, how could we not baptize him? The beginning of what? the beginning of the church. The church actually begins at Pentecost. He refers back to those events in Acts 2 as the beginning when he speaks of them in Acts 11.15. The church began at Pentecost. So they have different beginnings. The church in Israel are different because they have different constituencies. Israel is made of uh, all descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are some people who will use verses like Romans 9, 6, you know, where it says, uh, all Israel are not Israel. Have you read that verse? It seems to me, all Israel, not Israel. What we want to do is we want to widen. That's the natural thing. Oh, that's, there's more than Israel. But actually, that's not what he's talking about. In the context, he's talking about Jewish people. And he says, yet, in this big circle of Israel, they're not, there's an even truer Israel, a smaller circle within. Do you know who that is? The Jewish believers. The Jewish believers. That's the true Israel. Uh, you know, people say, well, does that mean that he's saying that the other people of Israel are not? No, no, he's not saying that. But it's sort of like when, I, when I, I have Moody students, and there are some that will not miss a class, uh, that will go to every event. That, and I you are a true Moody student. Well, I'm not saying the other 1,400 or so students, 1,500 students, are not true Moody students. But you know what I'm saying? You are a real Moody student. Well, the same thing. That's what the true Israel is. The Israel, the one, the faithful Israel that believes in Jesus. So they have different constituencies. Israel, all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whether they believe or not. And the church, 
described in Ephesians 2, the one new man composed of believing Jews and believing Gentiles have been made into one new man. There's a different constituency. Here's one of the interesting things about being a Jewish believer. Like Bill and me. We're the remnant. We sit as part, we're the remnant of Israel, and at the same time, we're the Jewish part of the church. It's, it's kind of an interesting thing to... Uh, it, I, it seems like it would be cool, but it, I feel like nobody likes us. <laughs> that's not true. That's not true. If actually, my, my Jewish neighbors have grown to accept me. <laughs> and sometimes there are people in the church who have grown to accept that there's a Jewish element in the church. But it's one new man, spiritually equal in Christ, composed of Jews and Gentiles. Now, one other way that the church in Israel is different, they have different elections. Not, that doesn't mean one votes on November 7th and the other in February. That's <laughs> Chicago and the rest of the country. Uh, what I mean by different elections is that the Israel is nationally elect. Israel has a national election. And what I mean by that is that when it speaks of Israel, it is speaking of a people who, though not believing, still are chosen. That's what election means, to be chosen. I want to read you a verse, Romans 11, 28 and 29. Romans 11, 28 and 29, speaking of Israel. It says this, Regarding the gospel, they, they, that's referring to Israel, are enemies for your advantage. It's for your advantage that Jewish people have rejected the gospel because now the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. It's for your advantage. But regarding election, God's chosenness, they are loved because of their forefathers, because of the covenants that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Scripture, love isn't, <clears throat> for of God, the love of God isn't an emotional feeling. It's choice. And hate is rejection. So, uh, when, when it says in Malachi, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, it means I have chosen Jacob, rejected Esau. This is saying that though Jewish people have become opponents of the gospel, they remain elect, chosen, loved, because God is faithful to his covenant. That is national election. It doesn't, doesn't buy you eternity, but it does give you national promises. And that's what God promised to Israel. Uh, a verse that I... You know, you ever read a verse and you think, I knew that was in the Bible before, but I never noticed it before. I was listening to the book of Romans in my car, and I, I came to this verse and I thought, that's really a good verse. I should have mentioned that one before. This is what it says in Romans 3.3, 3, speaking of Israel. If some did not believe, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? And what does... Absolutely not. May it never be. Israel remains God's elect people. The church is experiencing soteric or spiritual election by faith. You see that in Ephesians 1. Uh, the church that has believed in the Lord Jesus has been chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world. Soteric, meaning salvation, spiritual election by faith. So, here's uh, the point that I'm trying to make. I want to, all this, a lot of information, but here's what I've been trying to say. So what? First of all, Israel, not the church, is prominent in the tribulation. That's what I've been trying to say. 
And secondly, the church, a distinct entity, is seemingly absent from the tribulation. When we put these two things together, if we understand the differences between the church and Israel, I think we are compelled to believe that the church will be raptured, raptured before the tribulation. I think that's the clear message of Scripture, that God has a plan for the church, and the church uh, comes to completion at the rapture, when the dead in Christ rise, and every member of the body of Christ throughout history is resurrected or translated to go be with him, and be in heaven, and await the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will take place, and then return to deliver Israel. It appears to be the clearest teaching of what, this, what the Bible teaches about the tribulation period. Israel, focus of the tribulation. The church, removed before the tribulation. Well, what would I say to my friend who thinks this is bizarre and fantastic? You know what? It is. There's no doubt about it. But why should God make it any other way? He's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And that's exactly what I think we see in Scripture. Can we pray? Father, thank you that your word is clear and that it helps us to see these distinctions so that we can see that you have a plan and that you're going to keep your plan. You're going to be faithful to your promise. And Lord God, now, uh, we await your return any moment, any moment, maybe even before the end of this day, before the end of this conference, before the end of this next session. We await your return any moment, and we look for it. And we give you praise in the name of our Messiah, Jesus. Amen.